how I did it, I don't know, but I did it. I opened the door on my foot and tore off half of my big toe. Oh, yeah. Like the nail or the skin? Oh, the nail. Oh, God. Oh. And from the skin. Yeah. So this morning, like 7.45, I'm sitting upstairs trying to cut away this pretty much most of my nail that detached. Yeah. Oh, that's... It was a fun morning. Yeah, dude, it's so pain. Like toe, in- toe and foot injuries are the absolute worst. Hot pot of the South, not your daddy's Appalachia. Hot pot of the South, progress cannot be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pod of the South, a production of Change Tennessee. Pull up a chair and refill your sweet tea as we peel back the layers of Southern politics to get a better understanding of what's going on and why it matters. My name is Gabe. And we are without Maggie again, who has decided that she's actually going to go try to help Jeremy Corbyn out again, because the UK needs just as much as help as we do here in the US. But she's also probably lost in the minds of polymer and molds again. But as always, in her stead, we are joined by Tennessee's galactic communist revolutionary, Drew Dyson. Good evening, everyone. This week, we're actually going to take another trip down to the still because we are kind of here in the heart of primary season and the midterms races are really starting to shape up now. And so we're going to take a look down to the still to see what's brewing. I don't know. Is that, is that what it is? Brew? No, brewing is beer. Fermenting? See what's fermenting? Sure. See what's going on in the still. See what's fermenting, brewing, whatever the hell it is. That way we can kind of have an idea of what to expect come November. We've probably got one more of these in us before our batch is ready on November 8th, but here's where we are so far. But before we hop into that, Drew, do you have anything that you feel has a good spotlight right now or needs a good spotlight? Well, we are recording this the day after a horrific mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. And there's going to be a lot of talk about what took place, uh, what gun laws we need to pass, what gun laws should have been passed. And I'm not going to talk about that right now, but I'm going to talk about some discourse that I have seen surrounding the events of Better O'Rourke uh, interrupting the press conference. Obviously, what took place was a tragedy. These young children and These teachers were slaughtered by a crazed individual who was able to access his guns legally. And there is a time and place, and and obviously we're going to have this conversation now, that that conversation is ongoing. But I have seen so many pundits take the stand that this was inappropriate for better to do. It looked like a political ploy, et cetera, et cetera. I am sure for Beto's part, there is some political aspect to this, but I think like every other Democrat, for the most part, uh, our intentions are there. We want to see real change and we want to see, you know, meaningful change, not these thoughts and prayers or hearing Governor Greg Abbott say, well, it could have been worse. We're probably, you know, days, weeks away from the next worst school shooting or from the next mass shooting. It continually gets worse. 
So I think it's bullshit to hear him say that and to hear the media and to hear some of these pundits talk about the way that political discourse should take place is ridiculous. We are not winning anything by traditional forms of political discourse at the moment. And I think more people should be acting like Beto. I think we should be confronting our elected officials and asking them what they're going to do and let them know where they stand. Because when you look at it, we have, you know, Senator Marsha Blackburn here who has taken quite a bit of money from the NRA and we don't expect her to do anything, but that's blood money on her hands. And I don't think that anyone would fault us if we were to go up to Marsha Blackburn in a public setting and start questioning her about these issues. I think what Beto did set a great example for how these politicians need to be brought to the fire and, and made to pay for the actions that they did. Much like Tennessee, Texas passed and has an open carry law. They have some of the laxest gun laws in the country. Um, I know they were talking about this on you know, MSNBC the other day, but not too long ago, maybe a couple of years ago, Greg Abbott uh, tweeted that Texas was lagging in gun sales behind California and encouraged Texans to buy more guns. America has a gun problem, not a civility problem. I think what Beto O'Rourke did was actually the model for what more people should be doing to stand up to these callous individuals that continuously offer up their thoughts and prayers and act as they're sad and, you know, they don't, you know, we need to stop these tragedies before they happen, blah, 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 but never offer any real solutions and are the pets of the NRA. So, so yeah, that's my spotlight. I'm over the pundits and their fucking civility tricks. Uh, I think, you know, we have to start confronting these people where they're at and calling the bullshit out. You know, you brought up two things in on the spotlight that I, I think needs to be talked about as well, you know, really tightening that spotlight on it the comments that it could have been worse over 20 people are dead how much worse does it need to get if three students if one student was shot that's too that's bad enough i mean the more we keep hearing about it it doesn't really seem how much worse it could have gotten from from what i've heard now the shooter was able to one get through at least three police officers in the school SRO and then barricade himself inside a classroom with these kids and massacre them. I think that's as bad as it could get regardless of the situation. So these are the callous comments we hear and they're going to tout the freedom that they have for this stupid fucking amendment that was written over 250 years ago. Yeah, it's, it's insane. You know, the proud moment of the we have him contained in the building. You have him contained with all the possible fucking victims. Good job. You just unleashed a shark in a minnow pond. Good job. That, that is what you did. But the other thing that also put the focus on is exactly what you were saying about what Beto was doing. Democrats, for ever since I can remember, and really ever since the history of the modern Democratic Party, have always been passive pushovers. They've been the polite party. They've been the, oh, we have to take the high ground party. And look at where it's gotten them. It's, ma it's made them the, la the soy beta laughing stock of the culture war. And it's about time we get individuals like Beto who have said enough is enough, are putting their foot in the ground, 
and taking the fight to these ghouls that would rather have dead children than making it one one degree more difficult to go buy an AR-15. Exactly. And I think, you know, to what you say, I think there's some leaders within the House and Senate that do a good job conveying this. I think Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut has really made a name for himself on gun issues, especially after the 2012 mass shooting of Sandy Hook elementary school which was obviously his his home state he gave another impassioned speech on the house floor or on the senate floor excuse me asking you know what are we doing here if not to solve these issues and i think we have to be willing to speak up and speak out in those ways over just saying well we're going to introduce legislation and see what happens oh it's dead well that's all we can do I mean, we have to bring the fire when it comes to all these issues. And I think that's exactly what was done. It highlighted the issues that Beto wanted to discuss. And it really switched the conversation and changed the narrative. We have to grow a backbone and start throwing mud at these people who are propping up the Second Amendment like it's direct from God. It's only number two on the Bill of Rights. And they act like it's the number one thing in the world. I mean, hell, even our mayor here in Knox County talked about the Second Amendment being the most the most important of all the amendments. Well, no, it's number two. And secondly, and this will be when we finally have our gun control episode. The, the Second Amendment was written for a well-regulated militia in the time before the modern military existed. A well-regulated militia was in reference to a National Guard. It was nothing about the private citizen being able to have a small munitions depot in their basement. And the NRA's hard on for an individual to have that kind of stockpile has led to mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting. And it allows these extremists and people who should not be in possession of a gun to begin with access to these firearms to conduct these awful horrific attacks obviously we could keep going and talking about the many different angles of not just uvalde but gun control in general or some of the past mass shootings so i think it's in our interest to do one of these episodes soon to to discuss this um but gabe what what's an area that you want to spotlight i want to talk about i was going to think about doing it for the bless your heart but i think it deserves a spotlight too because it kind of shows how dangerous certain members of our society can be and that is again the it's a spinoff of the q movement and it's the people who believe in the secret space program uh who hold annual conferences and are really the most some of the most insane members of q movement and it doesn't get talked about because it's so it's considered so fringe of it, but it's this massive, they have a massive conference every year to discuss this uh, secret spa- space program in which, you know, aliens are beaming in thoughts and abducting individuals and implanting memories into them and ha- helping them realize past memories and past lives that are creating this fantasy world in which they live in every day and it has shaped their reality so much that they think this shit is true. And it gives, gives credence to, you know, the satanic panic type shit that we see that ruins lives as well. And all of that is, you know, all of that, it's all from the same tree. 
and it allows them to craft this these fantasy worlds that they live in and expect others to play by the rules that they're making up as they go along. And it's incredibly dangerous because it doesn't just affect their life. It affects the people around them. It puts stress on your familial relationships. I've cut off uh, communication with members of my family because they're like fully Q-pilled on some of this shit. Because, you know, I'm, I drink baby blood every Passover as, as a Jew. Um, I've talked about it before. Baby blood keeps the matzah moist, but that's another issue. But in, in seriousness, though, like this shit is so dangerous and we don't give it the credit that it's due because it's so far-fetched. These are the same type of people who are going to go and shoot up a pizza parlor because they read online that the Clintons have a baby harvesting facility in the basement. Or, you know, they're going to go raid a furniture store because they're helping traffic children. It's again, like I said, it's all from the same tree. It's all from the same thought bubble. And we have to approach this topic and let people know that this type of extremism is exists and it's in our day to day lives and we have to do something about it or we're going to have more crazy shit happening. We're going to have more January 6th esque events that won't be, that will happen all over the place. So we won't be able to direct an entire group of resources to a single one, but there'll be so many of these, we're going to be so stressed, uh, stretched out, they will succeed. And I think that's an important uh, thing that, I mean, when you're talking about something like this, we have to talk about the role that social media plays in it. And I think, you know, they have to be willing to change what they do. And I think people have to also understand that they're, they're media conglomerates. They are not places where, you know, you should just be able to spew out this hate. There are restrictions on what you can say in a, you know, setting like this. And I think, you know, what we've seen with Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and mainly, you know, the first two is that it leads people down a dark path. And I, I just, it's, it's a very hard topic. And we're seeing young men fall into these traps and be so easily led astray by these dangerous theories. We'll let you guys all stew on that. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hop on our golf carts and head down to the still to see what's moving along as we get closer to the midterms. Stay tuned. After some back and forth negotiating, we finally got our top sponsor back on the pod this week, Charles Koch. Over his lifetime, Charles Koch has spent millions of dollars through his network to influence state and local elections. Charles Koch, if my candidate won't win this year, then you better believe you won't win next year. everybody. Thank you for tuning in with us. And again, we're going to talk about the midterms because a handful of states have already had some primaries, but there's a lot more to go. But also, we're kind of starting to get an idea, at least here in Tennessee, of maybe how uh, the big primaries will happen in August with the local municipality primaries happening, which kind of give you a little taste of what the voter base is looking for when it comes to the big races later on in the year. 
Uh, Drew, being the nerd for races that you are, and just a glutton for punishment, what have kind of what have you seen kind of happening so far with the primaries? I mean, obviously there's the big one where we ever get to show everybody's favorite white supremacist con- uh, congressional rep the exit ramp with Madison Cawthorn, but I mean there's other big things that happened during the primary season at the local level and at the uh, federal level as well. So kind of what are some of the things that jumped out to you? So, so far with, you know, going through some of these states that have already held their primaries, only about, you know, uh, less than a fifth of states have held their primaries, but we're starting to see a few key things. And one of those is that Trump's endorsement is, is a mixed bag. It's not, seeming to be what it once was worth. And we're getting mixed results in that. Uh, Georgia just held its primary. Um, Brian Kemp is still the Republican nominee for governor, uh, even though Trump endorsed Purdue. Uh, Kemp won that fairly easily. He, He avoided having to go to a runoff. But you also see places like North Carolina Senate raced with Ted Budd. He easily won with uh, a big chunk of the vote there, a Trump-endorsed candidate. Likewise, uh, and, and we'll talk about this later on, but, you know, Madison Cawthorn, Trump-endorsed candidate, was just too close, you know, not enough to push him over. Um, so we're seeing a mixed bag here of, of what Trump's endorsement can actually do. That's the, that's the first big thing that we're seeing. Uh, the next big thing is, you know, we're still seeing a relatively good sized portion of Democrats turning out in these primaries. Uh, some states are matching their 2018 levels and some are even exceeding them. In Georgia, that was one of the case. Uh, so we're starting to see that. And we're also seeing, to some extent, progressive voices winning out in a lot of these races. Still, I would compare that kind of close to, you know, Trump's endorsement. There's not really anything clear on that yet. Uh, We're going to dive more into a couple of these states, but these are some of the big things that we're starting to see right now. You think Madison Cawthorn really lost his shot at winning it when he lost the Cokefield orgy voting block? You know, those that's a that's a huge block in North Carolina. And I think that really did him in when he said he wasn't down to clown like the rest of his uh, party members. So let's go ahead. We'll jump right into Madison Cawthorn because it's an exciting story to talk about. It's the best. (laughs) It's great. He lost his primary. But you know what? As as I was listening to some of my other podcasts, they pointed this out, you know, the Republicans are actually pretty well equipped to deal with crazy in their party if they want to. I mean, they launched this whole smear campaign against Madison Cawthorn and he lost. So they're able to get rid of some of these, you know, far right individuals that spout crazy conspiracy theories. But the other thing that it did, I mean, just the amount and the effort that the GOP put into making sure Cawthorn was not reelected, I mean, just tells me for a fact these these GOP coke orgies take place. There's no if, ands, or buts about it now. I mean, just the amount that they put into it, he's definitely, I mean, he was definitely telling the truth on that. And it's probably good old Ladybug Lindsay that was inviting them. You know, that's, that's the thing. Like, if you want to prove something is true, you deny it with your hand over the Bible and take that type of approach to it. And that's exactly what they did. 
So, you know, you know, I'm glad Cawthorn let the cat out of the bag. If you go to Coke-filled orgies, good for you. You know, you do you. But you can't go to Coke-fueled orgies and then talk about, like, the sanctity of marriage and have this holier-than-thou approach. And that's exactly the type of two-faced bullshittery that the Republican Party does. Apparently, they go to these Coke-fueled orgies but then are on Capitol Hill the next day talking about how evil, you know, pansexuality is and how anyone, like, if you even think about drugs, how you need to go to, like, life and how you need, like, life in prison for it. Like, I'm I'm glad he let the cat out of the bag because it just shows you how awful of human beings that these representatives are. We need all those motherfuckers out of office. Yeah, all of them should be out of office. I think the thing to remember is, too, is that Madison Cawthorn made his whole career much like uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and, you know, spouting crazy conspiracy theories far, far to the right. I mean, this this man was practically, if not quite literally, a Nazi. I mean, he went to uh, the SS's summer home to, you know, tour it and and vacation there i think that's called it a bucket list item a bucket list item that's you know there's a lot to unpack with that one but he will no longer be in that area or at least in the station of congress being able to talk about this that being said it is still likely to be a conservative that takes over that seat um however probably much less baggage probably a little bit more quiet than Cawthorn was. Uh, the opponent that won is a, uh, is a now a former state senator uh, in North Carolina. Um, but, it, you know, again, I, I think the biggest highlight of Madison losing is that, you know, one, it gave Democrats a chance to cheer that someone so vile could lose, but it also did show that the GOP is capable of getting rid of them. They just lack the backbone until it becomes an attack on them rather than Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, attacking the left and the, you know, quote unquote, libtards and owning the libs, et cetera. And, you know, one thing that you also pointed out about the Trump endorsement, uh, if you look at the math on Trump picks during this, the states that have already had their midterms, I think it's what, like 14 or so states that have had their midterms so far. He's only really good at picking the favorites. If you look at the breakdown of the numbers, he has like a 90 something percent success rate when his endorsement is the incumbent. When he's picking the outsider to unseat the incumbent, his track record is absolutely abysmal. I mean, look at what happened. Well, look at what was happening in Pennsylvania when he was pitching a fit with Dr. Oz's campaign, where he had like the entire uh, GOP voter base like freaking out because they kept finding like they kept counting votes and like the margins kept switching back and forth. And it was stop counting, keep counting, stop counting, keep counting, and just shed light on how absurd the election fraud claims are because he wasn't afraid to let the hounds loose of that on that as long as it meant he got his way and so and again he's only really good at picking people who are expected to win i can go to vegas and pick the favorites for almost anything and make out decently well i mean if you want to be a king a political kingmaker you have to bring the outsiders in and it just goes to show you that 
Trump isn't really good at anything. I mean, the only thing he's good at is being a bully and running his mouth. And that's that's what we're seeing right now. And we're going to, you know, start very broad and work our way back down to uh, the Tennessee level here. But, you know, these are the key takeaways. So let's let's kind of take you through some of these states, too, that have had primaries now uh, and briefly talk about them. So uh, Texas was the first one to kick it off. Uh, there in that state, Beto O'Rourke will face off against Governor Greg Abbott uh, in what is expected to be a, a close race. Um, it's so far polling is not showing it as close as his race against Ted Cruz. However, recent uh, changes in the political atmosphere could propel that. Um, we'll talk about some of those at the end, too, about what, what's changing, what to look forward to. Um, Texas is interesting. It's it's shifting somewhat blue, maybe not as fast as a lot of us would like. Uh, Gabe, I don't know about you, but back in 2020, I was a little bit disillusioned by the possibility of a blue Texas. The border is very blue. It's once you get to like the Houstons, uh, San Antonio's, where it just pretty much offsets that entirely. It'll be an interesting state to watch. Neither senator is up this cycle. So the biggest race there is governor's race. Um, the next state that uh, we will be watching is Ohio. Uh, so in Ohio, uh, the next state that people are going to be keeping their eyes on, uh, Trump endorsed candidate J.D. Vance and Appalachian Grifter uh, won his primary for uh, U.S. Senate, uh, beating out uh Trump bootlicker Josh Mandel, although both that could be said for J.D. Vance as well. Tim Ryan will face against J.D. Vance, uh, which is currently rated as a likely Republican win here. Uh, stranger things have happened. Uh, Ohio has not gone statewide blue outside of Sherrod Brown in the U.S. Senate. Ohio is going to be an interesting state. We'll see how things play out there. I think Ohio is going to be a very interesting state as well. I've actually got a, an acquaintance of mine who's, who's running for uh, District 7, Congressional District 7 up there, so I'm, I'm pulling for him. But Ohio is very much, has potential to be a blue state again because there's so, mu there's so much labor there. And the guy, the guy I know who's running there, that's a big part of his platform is labor because so many people have lost their jobs. You know, people talk about, everyone loves to clown on Cleveland because dear God, it's Cleveland. But, you know, it used to be a pretty vibrant city and wasn't the joke that it kind of is now where like the taglines, like at least we're not Detroit, but we get these representatives who actually give a shit about the working class again in states like Ohio, in states like Texas that has a huge uh, migrant population that's a ton of laborers, Michigan even, you know, with the auto manufacturing there. And down here in Tennessee as well, where there's a ton of uh, blue collar labor jobs, a lot of uh, people who are running, at least on the left and on the Democratic Democrat side of things, are embracing labor being the cause. Because when you actually put money in people's pockets, rather than just telling them you're not going to tax them, it actually makes a difference for these individuals. We're seeing that with a lot of these democratic platforms that are emerging are very much economic-based policy, putting money back in people's pockets, not just saying taxes are the boogeyman, but actually doing something about it. You know, having concrete plans of bringing jobs to the area and honestly 
beating back the awful, abysmal trade policies of the federal government that started in the 90s, they started in the 80s and 90s, that took these jobs out of these communities to go overseas. And, you know, now we finally have people who care and are trying to bring them back. And, you know, it sure shit isn't Republicans that are doing that because they're all in favor of big business. The Democratic individuals who are running for uh, economic populist ideology, which means bringing these jobs back to these small communities. Tim Ryan, interesting guy, very kind of centrist, moderate, but he has been very, very vocal for the working blue collar class in Ohio. It, I think it's going to set a good comparison against, again, Appalachian Southern Grifter, J.D. Vance, who has a warped reality of what Appalachia is. I think it'll be interesting to see how, how that plays out. And if uh, Ohioans see through the bullshit that J.D. Vance is offering and pull towards Ryan. Uh, you know, it's not far off to say that uh, Ryan could win. I mean, Sherrod Brown is a Democratic senator from the state of Ohio as well. And I think they have decently similar attitudes and decently similar politics. So I think it'll be a very interesting one to watch. And, and much to what you said, there's very real issues facing uh, Ohio the same way that a lot of them are facing many other Rust Belt states, but also the state of Tennessee between the opioid pandemic, uh, you know, steady economic gain recently, but, you know, uh, it suffered greatly in the period between NAFTA and the 20, you know, 2008 recession. Um, so very interesting to see how that one's going to play out. The next state I wanted to talk about is not a state Democrats are going to focus a lot on, but it's a state that I think is important to talk about Idaho. So Idaho, not a state that Democrats are going to win anytime soon, uh, had its primaries on May 17th. And the interesting thing that was happening there was the governor was running for re-election. Now, that's not interesting at all, but if you recall, back during the height of COVID, the lieutenant governor decided to take advantage of a little law in Idaho that decrees that when the governor is not in the state, the lieutenant governor is uh, in charge and repealed the very limited and lax COVID restrictions that uh, current incumbent Brad Little had in place. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan took some radical steps. And I mean, to be fair, Brad Little is not, you know, a centrist GOP candidate. He is very far to the right. Um, somehow Janice McGeehan beats him to the right, but they both ran for governor in uh, this primary and Brad Little easily defeated him, defeated her. It was an interesting primary to kind of watch. Uh, Idaho is a very interesting state for very far right groups and militias. Be interesting to explore that more, but I did think it was uh, quite interesting to find out that Janice McGeehan and her power struggle to become governor, even when she was not governor, has failed uh, and she will not be running for lieutenant governor also. So maybe some good news for the people of Idaho in that aspect. Yeah, another state 
worth watching is just to the north of us uh, up in Kentucky. Again, it's going to be one of those where I don't think it's going to be turning blue statewide anytime soon, but we did see back in uh, 2018 and 2020, there was a huge push there for progressive action. Uh, Unfortunately, the powers that be thought that a warmonger fighter pilot was the best option for the progressive push for Kentucky, which that blew up in the DNC's face pretty badly. But, you know, there is there is hope there. People are realizing that turtles don't belong in Washington, D.C. And based on like the brutal mishandlings of the Breonna Taylor incident are showing, you know, energize the leftist voter base there to actually get shit done. So, you know, I think as we move closer to November, I think Kentucky, I think will be an important state to watch for sure. And I think Kentucky, you know, while it may not be turning blue, did beat Tennessee to getting a blue governor, Andy Bashir. Of course, special circumstances, but all elections are based on special circumstances with that. So Charles Booker will face off against Rand Paul in the 2022 Senate midterm. Uh, it will be a good chance for to see a comparison between the more moderate centrist policies that Amy McGrath ran against Mitch McConnell in 2020 and a more progressive vision for Kentucky and the country in 2022 and see how these play out in the South. Um, outside of that, we talked a little bit about some of the exciting news out of North Carolina with Madison Cawthorn losing. Uh, Trump endorsed candidate Ted Budd did win his primary against former Governor Pat McCroy pretty easily, and he will face Democratic candidate Sherry Beasley, who is a former Supreme Court Justice for the state of North Carolina. Uh, currently, again, this is rated as a likely Democrat. North Carolina has always been, uh, or this has been rated as a likely Republican. North Carolina has always been on the cusp of being coming uh, uh, like Virginia, a more purplish state. Uh, To some extent we are, but we have some shortcomings there. Uh, We pray to God that Sherry Beasley will not end up like, I keep blanking on these names, fucking sex scandal. I would hardly call it a sex scandal though. It was like, the most innocuous text, though, it was like, oh, you're so pretty tonight. Cal Cunningham. It was the dumbest shit that got blown up because because of pearl clutching. The fucking Republicans have a sex scandal almost every other week, and their party gets behind them full-throated. A pretty decent candidate overall gets busted having text messages with another woman and it's the end of the fucking world there is something to be said about north carolina candidates and their sex scandals because i'm pretty sure edwards also had a sex scandal back in 2008 john edwards was shitty though like his wife was like dying of cancer and he's having an affair shitty people um but let's hope that sherry beasley uh can do better than cal cunningham uh That race in 2020 was decided by less than two points. It's going to be a close race. Fingers crossed for no sex scandals there. Yeah, let's hope so. 
The other exciting race and the possible pickup for Democrats was Pennsylvania, where uh, progressive candidate and Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman won his primary very easily against Connor Lamb, the moderate douche that I can't stand, uh, and will advance on to face either Dr. Oz in the general election. Gabe, with this being Democrats' most likely chance to pick up a Senate seat, what are your thoughts on, one, the Democratic primary that took place, and two, the ongoing battle within the Republican Party right now to fight for recounts? Yeah, so I'm again, I am super glad that it was Fetterman who won because he has the imposing stature and presence that Democrats really need now. I mean, I, I said it earlier in the show that, you know, on the national level, you know, they've kind of become the the soy beta simps of American society. And like, you can't really say that about Fetterman. The dude looks like he would snap you in half if you like accidentally brushed by him on the sidewalk. And he's got a pretty good progressive policy, you know, and he he understands what matters to people as well. Like he's not this, he's not like coming from the so far left, where some people will criticize him for where he's like, he's pretty pro-gun within reason. And, you know, I think outside, you know, outside of like Philadelphia, you know, Pennsylvania is a pretty rural state, very blue collar worker where people like their guns you know, he's been like, yeah, I don't give a shit. Keep your guns. And I think that that bodes well and resonates well with the voters there. But outside of that, you know, he's pretty progressive on or, you know, what what most progressives and leftists would want out of a candidate. So um, he brings a, a, a fresh new face to the Democratic Party that I think is very well needed. But I think he, he does a really good job of helping bridge the gap between the older generation of Democratic voters and the younger generation. And then for the other side of the aisle, you know, we again, we talked about it earlier as well. Uh, we were talking about Trump and his like election fraud claims where he's damaging his own party with it because he want Oz was his guy to win. And I mean, don't get me started on how Dr. Oz is an awful human being for all of the pseudoscience that he spouts on his show with like fucking uh, meditative healing in surgery where he's bringing in like actual like mediums and psychics to perform metaphysical healing on patients while they're under the knife but trump is harming his own party because as that lead as it you know the results first came out and oz lost uh trump was demanding a recount saying it was voter fraud election fraud and then as the and even as more votes were being counted and the leads were growing and shrinking and growing and shrinking, and he kept screaming about it, was only damaging his own party, which proves that he doesn't give a shit about democracy or voting at all. He just wants his guy to win, bottom line, and shows that just further demonstrates the danger that Trumpism brings to our country, especially in such a critical midterm election when we've seen how bad districts have been states and districts have been gerrymandered uh, off of the last census. Uh, Segwaying here into the Pennsylvania uh, governor's primary, you have Josh Shapiro, attorney general of Pennsylvania, 
running for governor in here, ran unopposed, won his primary. You have Trump endorsed candidate Doug Mastriano winning his primary uh, in, in the Republican side. If you have not heard about Doug Mastriano, be terrified. He was at the insurrection on January 6th. He has made statements saying it is the job of the governor basically to overturn uh, the state electorates and to assign their own if they see fit. Uh, he is dangerous to democracy and he would override Pennsylvania's votes come 2024 if he is elected governor. Uh, it's probably the biggest and most important governor's race of the, of the cycle with just another one of these insurrectionist goons and anti-democracy goons running for office again. Um, but it's going to be an interesting race out there with a very far insurrectionist candidate running for office and, you know, Josh Shapiro running, who, if you're like me, constantly watching you know, election day from that whole week waiting to hear the announcement of what Pennsylvania was going to do. You saw Josh Shapiro on quite a bit. Uh, so we have the choice between a Democratic courting candidate and an anti-democracy candidate. And I think for Pennsylvania voters, it should be really scary what could happen. Pennsylvania is rated as a toss-up in the Senate race and the governor's race with a slight favorability for both to the Democrats. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see what happens there. I think it's time, you know, we've talked about all these other states. And we've kind of circled Tennessee. We've talked about Carolina, Georgia, Kentucky. I think we we finally bring it home, you know, here where we've only had our municipal primary so far. But I think the municipal primaries we've had kind of goes to show you kind of how the big primaries, the statewide races will pan out come August. Uh, for the most part, it was a lot of party establishment wins. You know, here in Knoxville, you there were, you know, everybody's favorite fascist who's run now in like three different elections and has like changed his his coloring each time on his signs, but literally has changed nothing else. Nick Cipero running and he got hosed again. And again, you know, he's one of these fascists who doesn't really know history or how elections work, but, you know, to see him get hosed and his cronies get hosed, despite their pretty fucking close to election meddling that was going on at the polls where they had their little people posted up, you know, kind of seeing the results makes me wonder if Tennessee right now has the push in it to go more left than what they are currently on track for. And Tennessee is going to be an interesting one because one of the things that we have done down here is we have engaged a lot of very local candidates. And some of these counties have not had uh, candidates run for, you know, say county commissioner or school board or trustee, et cetera, in quite some time. And while these counties might be red, it's made it a little bit hard to determine what the local level of engagement might be. And you might be able to look at a county like, let's say, McMinn County here in Tennessee, uh, 
when it comes to the presidential or governor's race, it only ranks in about, or it only comes in at about a 20% Democratic uh, county. However, sometimes you'll look at county commission candidates or school board candidates, and they actually do overperform the top of the ticket because it's not technically because these, these voters that they're interacting with are more democratic on the local level, it's because they're able to engage with these people more personally. So there's a disconnect there that we're not able to see. And, you know, in certain counties like Knox County, we can tell where, you know, we have a target district that we can do, but in some of these other rural counties and counties that haven't had uh, um, candidates running recently, we don't know where we can pick up. And uh, we have seen in past elections that we've worked on that, you know, when you run a candidate sometimes for the first time, they win. Uh, even in these places you'd expect to be red. So we have that to look out. We're also going to have state house and state senate seats up. Tennessee's very red. And we have a pretty, you know, I mean, we have a solid supermajority right now. But I think what most Tennesseans and most Democrats think about when like we talk about winning Tennessee is they expect almost instantaneous gains. And I think that is a downfall to what we should expect here. Um, since 2018, we have gained seats and it's been maybe one seat at a time, but we've gained seats in the state house and state Senate compared to losing seats in the state house for 12 years until 2018. You know, we might've only won one or two seats but we stopped the bleeding. And I think that's a big thing. And now, you know, looking ahead at this election, while state house races are smaller and sometimes harder to determine, we're eight seats away from breaking the supermajority in the state house. We have four seats that are considered toss-ups practically. And then we have another handful of seats that are build districts. They're within striking districts or striking distance but they are still, you know, a little, we'd have to work really hard to get them. It's not impossible to say that we could, one, we're not going to gain back. I mean, I, I would love to, I'll be thrilled if it happens. We're not going to gain back the state house or state senate this cycle, um, but we can break their majorities. And, you know, if you're listening to this, uh, and you live in the state of Tennessee, some of those house districts are going to be House District 18 right here in Knox County. You have House District 59. We have House District 75 and House District 97 as some of the top target counties. If you didn't hear your county or your state house district, that does not mean all hope is lost. Let me tell you something. The biggest thing that you could do is one, find out if you have a candidate running. If not, find a candidate close to you or find a candidate you're passionate about and help them. Because what can happen is we can take a district like, let's say, you know, House District 6, uh, which is in Northeastern Tennessee, and make it a, you know, 30-point Democratic district and turn it into a 35% Democratic district by the end of the cycle. That doesn't sound like much, 
but I can assure you that when we come back again in 2024 to run, we're starting at a higher baseline. And so there's some of these things that are happening. Tennessee, definitely, a, you know, it's a red state, but it's also a non-voting state. And I think that we are still set up in a decent enough area to where we can make decent gains. And I'll talk about this to kind of end out the podcast before we, we head out, but we are starting at a place that's pretty low on the totem pole. There's not much ground that we can really lose. So we're afforded a lot of areas to try new things and to expand upon our electorate. So to Tennesseans that are, you know, looking to out of state, and I know we have spent this whole episode kind of setting you up for what's going on in the midterm, because it's important for you to know what the state of national politics is, as well as what's going on on your state level and local level. Um, I would encourage Democrats listening to this that live within Tennessee, or even if you live within your state or another red state, if you were going to give $50 to John Fetterman, give your $50 to your local county commission candidate or your local state house candidate. That $50 is going to go much further than the money that a very nationalized race is going to get you. Blue states candidates, if you're listening to this, your money can go to red states. I think y'all have got a handle on things over there. Please give us your money. Um, Donate to Change TN. We would love some money to continue our fight. But that's what I have to say kind of right now about the state of Tennessee politics is, is things look dire. Things can change. We're in a decent part of this to change our state politics and a pretty good part to change our local politics as well. The fact that you brought up that Tennessee is a non-voting state is crucial to, uh, to know. Uh, at the governor's level, I mean, Bill Lee won his election by over 200,000 votes, but that is, that is a statewide Memphis to Bristol vote count. When you get into some of these districts, these Senate districts and House districts and county commissions and all that, especially as you get into the more rural areas, these races are so incredibly close that you you wouldn't realize it. So many of them, especially your local races, your county commissions, your school boards, a lot of those races are decided by less than a couple hundred votes. To be engaged in your hyper-local races is huge. That 50 bucks or whatever, even health, even if it's only like 10 or 15 bucks, that can go a long way because, you know, that, that could buy them a sandwich when they're out canvassing and lets them go and knock on another an extra 20 doors. Well, that's an extra 20 votes that they could earn right there, plus the multiplying effect if those people get somebody else to turn out and vote for that candidate as well. So it's super important to be engaged on, especially with these hyper-local races. And don't think just because you're out in Maury County that your vote isn't going to matter. I mean, you you get a representative in Nashville just like everybody else does. And your representative in Nashville has a vote equal to that of every other representative in Nashville. So, you know, really make sure that the candidates that are running have your support, whether it be emotional or financial or physical, you know, even just sticking up a yard sign out there will help, especially in such a crucial midterm year when 
we've seen a ton of progressive candidates crop up and really want to push Tennessee in the direction it needs to go. More are coming out the woodworks as we get closer. And it's awesome to see how many people care about this state and want to move it forward uh, versus the ass backwards policies that the supermajority have put in place. So Gabe, got a question for you because we're talking about, you know, what Tennessee can do. So here in Knox County, from 2014, the last time we had, well, the second to last time we had a governor's uh, race here, to 2018, how how much do you think the Democratic percentage of the vote increased? Uh, I'm going to say 15 to 20%. You're close, actually. 25%. Wow. Yeah, I was just thinking there was a lot of apathy back, you know, kind of during the Obama years to how much Knox County hated Trumpism. Yeah, 2014 was one of the worst years for Democrats in terms of turnout and in terms of offices lost. So when we say that Tennessee is a non-voting state, we really mean that. That's a unnatural swing that you see from 2014 to 2018. And I can tell you that uh, voter turnout very much increased over those election cycles. I think these are things to keep in mind for our voters. And before we close out and go to our bless your heart segment, um, one little thing or a couple little things here. And these are, you know, we talked last time about how last time we did a midterm update, how things look pretty dire for the party in power. Um, still somewhat the case. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, but things have changed. Uh, voter enthusiasm across Democrats has increased 6% and almost over Republicans now in just the last month. That's important in terms of what we want to see. Uh, we've also seen that uh, while Joe Biden's you know favorability has fallen and is at its lowest levels, um, the uh, generic congressional ballot has increased towards Democrats' favors now, uh, with Democrats only now down by a couple of points instead of a larger margin. So things are looking better for us. And as long as we can remind voters, one, we're the only party with plans. Uh, the Republican Party will tell you what they're against. They will not tell you what they're for and what their plans to combat these issues are. Uh, and if we can tell them that, you know, your rights are realistically under attack, that I think Democrats still have a good shot. And from where I was in November, the last time we recorded a midterm episode or January, whichever time it was, so that way it can be cut and edited <laughs> what I say. Um, I feel much more optimistic about Democrats' chances for not only retaining the House, but even possibly growing our majority and keeping the Senate, as well as growing our majorities across Tennessee. Absolutely. You know, it's we can only keep building. Uh, shitty situations bring out the best in people. And I think we're seeing that with a lot of those uh, shifts that you just pointed out, Drew. So kind of a silver lining to all the shit that's hitting the fan right now. But if we can get these wins come midterms, we can actually enshrine a lot of this stuff into law and we won't have to worry about it again. And then we can go back to bitching about stupid culture war stuff. But with that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we've got a few people that could just use a good old bless your heart. 
The Coctopus is known for getting its tentacles all over local elections, with no plans to change in the future. Because of that, Charles Koch has molded the political landscape we face today. Charles Koch, man may be made in the image of God, but elections are made in the image of me. Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in with us this week as we finish up our trip down here at the still. But before we head out, we've got a few people that could just use a good old bless your heart. It's bless your heart with Bobby June. Hello, hello. Oh my, you little angels. Look at you. Just so wonderful. Thank you. And bless your heart. Bless your heart. Now, Drew, to start us off this week, who do you think needs a good old bless your heart? Oh, this might not sit well with a couple of our viewers, but I'm giving it to Nancy Pelosi. The reason I'm giving that to her is because we had the chance to knock out the only House Democrat that has a positive rating from the NRA and the only pro-life Democrat still in the House uh, congressional delegation. Not only did they in Endorse Henry Quaylar over progressive candidate Jessica Cisneros, her and other House leadership recorded robocalls in an 11th hour attempt to gain him votes. The thing that I would say to this, though, is that the crocodile tears shed when we heard about Roe and the issues of gun violence don't feel real coming from leadership because they would rather entrench their incumbency than fight for what is right. They didn't even have to make an endorsement in this race. They could say, you know what? We're not going to. We're going to let this play out. Uh, even at the height of this political climate where we have now known about Roe for some time and, and its possible fate, and then days you know, after just a mass shooting in Buffalo, I know by the time that you know, this this shooting in Texas actually happened the day of the uh, runoff election. I think it's disgraceful to Nancy Pelosi's legacy and other House leadership's legacy. And uh, I think it also shows why younger voters are apathetic to want to join the Democratic Party to begin with, because they are so out of touch with what is going on. And so basically, you know, my bless your heart is just a, a shame on you, Pelosi. I don't buy your your bullshit on caring about Roe v. Wade. I don't buy your bullshit on caring about gun rights because you felt the need to endorse this candidate. It just feels, you know, I mean, to me, it felt like a stab in the back to traditional democratic values now and and so you know what bless your heart nancy she's over there probably still trying to figure out how to use her thirty thousand dollar refrigerator so i will say i want that refrigerator do i have thirty thousand dollars no but nancy you want to make amends give me that refrigerator but i think it, it, it proves though how out of touch that they are i mean especially pelosi like you know, endorsing Representative Quaalude. I don't know what the guy's name was, but Quaalude's way better. And they're more fun. 
they would rather keep status quo because that's what protects them at the end of the day. You know, and we've talked with significant donors of the Democratic Party, and that's the frustration that they've had as well, that they're not willing to step up and make shit happen. They would rather let things keep going because they can fundraise off of that and they can pad their pockets at the end of the day off of it. And it just shows you how disingenuous that they really are. All right, Gabe, what, who, who are you going to bless your heart to? So I'm going to give a big old bless your heart to all of the snowflake right-wing NFL f- and sports fans out there. They're all up in arms because all of a sudden athletes have become activists over the past decade or so. And, you know, the, they just don't know what to go anymore because, you know, before you could go to the sports ball field and just let your toxic masculinity shine and show who really is the supreme alpha male out there. And now all of a sudden that these athletes realize like there's bigger shit than ball through hoop, ball through air going on and have used their platform to express their opinion and their voice to huge issues, you know, Colin Kaepernick with police brutality, Chris Cluey with gay rights, and, you know, all of these right-wing wackos, nut jobs, have gotten all up in arms about how sports need to be about sports and have really just gotten their feelings hurt so badly where they're now starting to turn off uh, the NFL, the NBA, and, you know, just bless their heart for just being fragile little snowflakes and not being able to suck it up and just deal with it when people have a voice and they don't aren't willing to listen to you just say shut up and play ball and are actually willing to do something with their platforms i mean you hit you hit the nail on the head is that sports ball is political still just because celebrities or these professionals are someone that's seen doesn't mean they forfeited their right to these issues. And actually, to some extent, I think it makes a much bigger difference, you know, because at the same time, while they'll complain about like someone like Coach Kerr coming out and talking about gun violence for the same instance, they'll praise Clint Eastwood for talking to an empty chair, uh, pretending Obama's there, etc. And I think that we just have to understand that these individuals didn't give up their First Amendment right. And to some extent, they have a duty to speak up to certain things. If they choose not to, that that's that's fine. But I'm a Swifty by every measure. Um, love Taylor Swift, one of her biggest fans in her top 0.5% of fans, actually, according to Spotify, there were some people that were disappointed that she didn't speak out against certain issues as well. And it's not that we expect these people to do it. It's that we, to some extent, idolize certain individuals or we care about certain individuals enough that we would listen to what they have to say on political issues. So I think it's important that we do that. And uh, for the conservatives that don't want to be silenced, they sure like to silence others. And tender little snowflakes. Exactly. Well, everybody, that'll do it for us. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We really appreciate it. Now, Drew, do you have an internet home or a place where people can find you? You can find me at Twitter at Andrew Dyson, and you can find me retweeting and tweeting about Taylor Swift and Star Wars and the occasional political tweet here and there. Also, make sure to follow us at ChangeTN underscore, where you can keep up with all the good work we're doing here in Tennessee. Thank you so much for that. And 
Be sure to follow us on Twitter at pod underscore South. You can find me on Twitter at Graham 851. Also make sure to leave us those sweet, sweet five-star reviews as they help others discover us and hear the siren song of Appalachian leftists. Thanks everybody and have a great night. Pod, pod of the South, not your daddy's Appalachian. Pod, pod of the South, progress cannot wait.